Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hey, 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 how's it going? (laughs) This is episode 112, and I am Danielle Delamar. Oh my gosh, y'all. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Nicole Yance for today's interview. And she is just so candid about what she went through when she hit burnout as an academic and as an academic who was trying to like heal her burnout by pushing herself harder. Honestly, it is not atypical at all. This is what we do, right? We're trained to overwork. So when we need a break, we overwork so that we can earn the break. (laughs) It is just ridiculous. But the culture that reigns, right? Academic culture teaches us that this is how you do it. You get ahead by working and working and working and working. And when you finally see that you're on top, then you can take a small break. Let's just be super honest, though. That does not work. As much as we want it to, as much as we push ourselves so that we can get to that perfect moment when we're on top of the world, and then we can take a break. As much as we do all of that stuff, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this is what I love about Nicole's interview, or one of the things I love about her interview. She's like, the only reason I stopped is because my body stopped me. And this is so true for so many of us, right? And one of the really fascinating pieces of this interview, which I'm excited for you to hear, is when Nicole is talking about like, trying to figure out how to navigate her sick leave because she's not used to having time and space for herself, (laughs) right? Like, what do I do? How do I manage this? I don't have anything to obsess about. I don't have anything really heavy to carry. I don't have any pushing to do. I don't have any, you know, fast running to do. What do I do with myself? Just that sense of not knowing, like, literally not knowing how to take a break. So many of us experience this. You know, it's like this addiction to work, this addiction to being busy all the time. And, you know, you may be sitting there craving space and really needing to take a break and needing sleep and needing all the stuff that comes with that. But the minute you get it, you kind of freak out and you don't know, well, what should I do? Right. And you start like going down like a new rabbit hole just to keep you busy. And then that thing that you need, that rest, that space, you're not getting it. And you do this in so many ways. We all do this in so many ways, right? Well, oh, I got a minute. I'm going to listen to to a little bit of a podcast or I've got a minute. I'm going to go ahead and Google this question I have about nutrition or I've got a minute, I'm going to check my email real quick. So even when we're taking an intentional break, we fill up the break with tasks and then we continue to be exhausted. We continue to not give our body what it needs. This is why I'm doing the academic year detox on May 13th. And by the way, you should come. If you haven't signed up, you should sign up because what we're doing is helping you to turn into the experience you had over the course of this last academic year, which I know has been really hard for a lot of people, and really process the emotions that you haven't been processing because you've been so busy. Let's talk about why it's so important to process the emotions, which means showing up for your emotions, feeling them in your body, holding them, offering compassion to yourself is absolutely necessary if you want to get clear about the vision you have for your career. It doesn't become clear until you've cleared out the emotions because this is the deal. 
your emotions are there to teach you something, right? If you are experiencing regret and you never deal with it and you just keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, that lesson that's embedded in your regret never gets learned. And if we can't learn the lessons that are just naturally coming up for us, we certainly can't start to pave a self-compassionate career path. So essentially that vision that you could have for your career gets buried under a bunch of unprocessed emotion and you begin to feel really heavy and you begin to feel really sort of glazed over and confused and groggy. Nothing really feels like it makes sense. You got to clear that shit out. (laughs) You know, you really got to clear it out. Because if you clear it out, you make space for yourself, right? And that's what this detox is about. It's about clearing the emotional and mental clutter that you've accumulated over the course of the academic year and then making space for yourself so that you can walk into summer clear-headed. Walk into summer this time that you get to decompress. You walk into that with a little bit more energy with a little bit more strength, with a little more clarity, as opposed to feeling heavy the whole summer long, never fully recovering from last academic year and then having to start the next academic year, right? This stuff builds on itself. It accumulates. There is a reason you need to have a detox at the end of an academic year, especially if you're feeling the way I'm describing, right? the sense of just being sort of out of it and exhausted. Go to selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Don't forget the .com. Click on Academic Year Detox and register. Let's start clearing this stuff out of your system, okay? And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. So a big, big thank you to Dr. Nicole Yance for really telling her story in an honest and vulnerable way because so many of us can relate. In her story, we can see ourselves. And in her story of strength, right? This whole, I think I'm going to actually turn in and figure this out and do the healing and do the inner work that all of this requires and make the hard decisions like leaving academia because I have courage and I have strength and I care about myself. That's also something you can learn from this interview. Nicole is amazing and you will get to hear that right now. Thank you so much for joining our conversation today. I'm talking to Dr. Nicole Yance, writer's coach. Nicole, how's it going? Hi, Danielle. It's going really well. Um, I had my recovery day today, so I stuffed myself full of donuts and went to the chiropractor to sort out my back. Oh, that sounds like a great day. Yes. Okay. So (laughs) tell me about recovery day. What is recovery day? So recovery day is a day that I put into my calendar because I'm actually really bad at recovery. Um, It means that technically there are no meetings scheduled. Um, You are the exception. Um, (laughs) And I sort of, yes, of course. And um, yeah, I hang out in my garden or I go, you know, I went for a walk with a friend, got myself a nice frappuccino um, and basically Mm. do nothing. Mm, So good. So when did recovery day begin? Like, at what point did you realize you needed to have recovery days? I realized it when I, you know, when in the moment when I thought I've got myself sorted, but really I hadn't. So I had, you know, um, we might be talking about that in a second, but I had overcome burnout. I had relapsed. I had gotten better. I quit my job. I became a coach. Everything was great. I was the master of my time. Mm-hmm. And I realized that this hardworking mentality wasn't really over. So I was overdoing it as a coach, even though I became one to not overwork. Yep. Right. So I, I basically, you. yeah. Um, that's when I decided it's going to happen and I put it in the calendar and um, ever since I've had my Thursdays off. 
let's just take a second and pause mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. people can just sort of take that in. Okay, you were in academia, you burned out, you got out of academia, it felt really good for a while, and then you realized, ah, turns out like these habits I'm carrying with me to my coaching work now. Yeah. Um, and that totally, I resonate with that. That same thing happened to me. Um, recovery days sound amazing. What else are you doing to keep yourself well? So I'm really rigorous with what I put on my plate. Um, it took me a while to get there, but I, I'm just I'm setting priorities in a way that makes me sound like an asshole. And so I'm just ruthless. You know, I'm saying no left, right, and center, and that means I have more space. To think and when I do something, it means something to me. There's a reason why I do it. And anything else is just, you know, not for me. Thanks very much. Sorry, but I'm not committed to to whatever you're asking me. Awesome. Okay. So do you mind my asking what Mm -hmm. your three big goals are? Yes. So I've got three amazing goals for uh, this year. One is finishing my book. It's a nonfiction book about how to write productively Ta-da! And number two is um, professionalizing my coaching even more, building it, um, molding it the way I want it to mold, finding the clients I want to make, I want to have, improving my income as well. And then number three is sort of managing my anxiety. This is sort of the what I brought out of my life as an academic, and it's still with me. And so I'm taking coaching. And I'm trying to be mindful and I have a lot of tools to sort of manage the anxiety. That's the third goal. Awesome. Okay. Um, So I guess I'm thinking about um, as a former academic myself and work was just my everything. Um, I... I would push everything aside so that I could work more and work harder. And so it became a real struggle to put sort of my goal of taking care of myself, taking care of my body. Um, That was a really hard thing for me to do, right? Because it's all about work. And if it's not related to the job, the quote unquote job, it's not worth it. And so yeah. I wonder, did you have sort of a similar issue when you said, one of my goals for this year is going to be to manage anxiety? Um, did you did you have to overcome anything like, <laughs> like that to, to make that a goal? Um, it was so it was easy to make it a goal. Um, you know, write it on a piece of paper and stick it above my desk. But it was hard to give it the space that it needs. I just thought, okay, once a week, I'm getting coaching, that's it, it's slotted in, boom, boom, boom. And so I what I didn't factor in that it does need the space, I I do need more journaling, I do need to go on walks, I need to actually do the yoga and not just think about it. And so (laughs) yeah, setting the goal was easy sticking with it and just letting it breathe and letting letting it be with me that yes. was the harder bit and you know i'm still working on that um yeah and uh, it makes me think about this um this uh, this addiction that we often have like if i'm not accomplishing then i'm just not doing what i need to be doing i have to be accomplishing um and so making space for this makes you feel like you're not accomplishing. And in my mind, that seems like it would be the reason it's hard to make space for it just because Mm -hmm. of that sort of cultural imperative of you must be doing something at all times. You must be accomplishing it. it, Tell me where I'm wrong. Is that, is that true for you or is there something else that create that makes it difficult for you to create space? It's totally true. Um, With the other goals, you know, building my coaching business and writing my book, you sort of develop the discipline, you learn the tools, and you know what to do, you know, all the, you know, all the things I learned in academia about being analytical, working hard, they have a good place in those areas. And for anxiety, 
it's more I need to do the thing that's really hard for me, which is sort of ease, right? Ease into stuff, mm. letting go. I need to do the steps for my anxiety training, but it's not something I can necessarily force. Uh, it's often about letting go and easing up, and that is not yeah. coming so easily to me. <laughs> I, I guess I just want to say to people, all right, just keep in mind that if you are dealing with, you know, this, this issue of anxiety or overwhelm or burnout or whatever it is, um, make space to give yourself some sense of um, wellness and you're not alone in it being challenging. Um, I guess I want to say that to people who are mm -hmm. sort of hurting and I wonder, would you add to that? Yeah, you know, the biggest problem that I had when anxiety was really strong was that feeling that um, I need to manage it better. And and I also felt yeah. really alone. And yeah. so I agree with what you said. We are never quite alone. And, I, you know, I see it with my own clients. They are all struggling with similar things and sort of I'm helping them with what I need as well. <laughs> And so, yes. yeah, you're, you're absolutely right with that. And it's, you know, most of my clients are academics and it is really, really hard to sort of manage mental health and be mindful and just relax, you know? So, yeah, I'm in the same boat, essentially. And I'm wondering, what are the things that you're seeing most as a writing coach? And I'm, ta I'm talking specifically about your academic clients. What is sort of the, the top one or two big issues that, that you're working through with them? Probably the inner critic. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, academia, as, as we all know, is this pressure cooker and you only, you are only worth something if you are producing all these amazing papers and all these grants and you're sitting on these committees and you're doing amazing teaching. And there is not really a lot of space to say to colleagues or to hear from colleagues, it's okay if you suck for just a little bit. No one ever says that. Everyone is just competitive. And I felt so much shame being burned out and struggling and not coping. And I felt there wasn't really a place to say that. And so it's the same for my clients. You know, they come to me to finish a writing project, like an article or a book. But under the surface, there is all this stuff happening where they are, be they are being so harsh to themselves. They, they talk to themselves how in a way that I would never talk to a friend and they would never do that either. And mm -hmm. so this sort of self-compassion and being kind to yourself and, you, you know, letting the inner critic be, but not believing everything they say that yeah. I, I spend like 90% of my time on that. And then we talk about the paper. <laughs> uh-huh. Totally, totally. Because it's the inner critic that can just completely arrest you and make yeah. it so you don't do the work you want to do. Um, oh, gosh, I have a couple questions, actually. One of them has to do with um, you. You mentioned sort of feeling like an asshole or yep. <laughs> when you when you say no <laughs> to things. And so I'm wondering, how are you managing the asshole? And is that your inner critic, right? Is your inner critic telling you you're being an asshole? And how are you talking to your inner critic when that comes up? <laughs> well, that's a good one. Yeah, you caught that uh, right away. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I do different things. One is a lot of journaling. I mean, I'm a writer already, so I love journaling. I love writing by hand. And mm -hmm. so I try to, in my journaling in the morning, I try to reframe things that I say about myself. So I would, would write down sort of like toxic thought that, you know, the inner critic says to me. But, you know, we all know that the inner critic is basically us. We just sort of use that <laughs> metaphor, right? And so I would write down that thing. And then I would sort of like breathe a little bit and feel it um and then mm. you know i would rewrite the sentence i'm you know it's hard for me but i'll just imagine okay if i was my best friend how would they say that same thing mm. and i can write it in a nicer way and sometimes i feel a bit stupid doing it right but it sort of makes me feel better and it makes me realize that 
I don't have to be so hard to myself. I don't have to call myself an asshole because I'm really just protecting my own time and taking care of myself when I say no to something. Yes. And I, and one of the things that I'm thinking about is the, the whole feeling stupid when you're doing it. If people saw me and some of the things I do to work through some of my <laughs> thoughts, <laughs> I will... I will ta- I will coach myself by getting on audio and just talking out for 45 minutes mm-hmm. or an hour sometimes. And then I like will switch places with myself and be like, okay, Danielle, so you're saying this. And like, I will literally coach myself and I sound and look ridiculous, but <laughs> I'm the only one around. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something to that, right? Like, even even sometimes when I have clients like stand up and hold their body in a particular position so they can feel that sort of physicality of whatever the thought is they're having, like they'll say, I don't, I have had people say, I just feel silly. I don't want to do yeah. this. And by the way, I'm coaching on audio only. So I'm not like seeing them do this, mm-hmm. um, but they still feel weird about it and stupid about it. And I think it's, anyway, I just like that you brought that up because I think that that's, um, that's important, like to acknowledge that you may feel silly and that's okay. Yeah. Feel silly. The silliness is going to help you heal, <laughs> right? Because it, you just got to be able to do what you need to do without like feeling like you have to do it a certain way or like this is the this is the ridiculous way to I don't know work through this thought and this is the right way to work through the thought just let your sort of inner wisdom tell you the best way to work through the thought I don't know if you'd add anything to that but that just came up to me while you were talking um yeah I I love that I love the you know the the self-conversation and, and it reminded yeah. me of uh, this one time I had a, you know, I had a therapist who was helping me with my panic attacks. And one of the issues of panic attacks is that I feel I can't breathe, breathe properly. And so he said, okay, let's turn off um, the video and let's hyperventilate together to <laughs> get you into a state where you can't breathe. You feel like you can't breathe properly just to show you that you're not going to die basically. And so it was this weird moment where he and I were like, (laughs) 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 and you know, I had to just, I had to let everything go and just do it. (laughs) It was the most ridiculous thing I've done in a really long time. And, but also it really helped me in that it helped me. I, because I did not die right obviously I'm here. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that really silly moment was extremely important and valuable to me and I would have never done it if he hadn't said come on let's just do it together I love that and this is the inner critic right that's Mm -hmm. stopping you from like healing like no 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 you're gonna look ridiculous if you do that you don't want to do that yeah I love it okay so I guess what I want to talk to you about is the burnout so you were an academic and you left but you didn't leave until after you'd gone through a really, really difficult period. And so Mm. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, after my um, PhD, which I did at Cambridge and then the postdoc, I got a lectureship um, Mm. here in the UK and I thought, wow, amazing jackpot. And I was so, so happy to get it. And it was even, you know, two, two and a half hours away. So I was willing to commute and, you know, I thought, oh, this amazing career is now going to unfold in front of me. And so, you know, a few years in, I noticed that things weren't really, something wasn't right. And I was sort of irritable. I had, you know, at that point I had two young kids. I was exhausted and I've sort of started, the feeling started creeping in. I can't manage. And I started fighting with my partner. You know, I sort of, at some point, when it got really bad, I didn't want to open my email. Um, and I felt like easily upset that at everything someone would say, either a colleague, my boss. So it was sort mm. of, I got deeper and deeper into that and got, yeah, sort of really worried. And I got neck pain all the time. I had back pain. Mm. I had a cold all the time. And, you know, I had friends. Yeah, two years before I quit, telling me 
why don't you take a few months off? Just go on sick leave because there is generous sick leave in the UK. Um, in many universities, it's paid. So why don't you do that? And I kept saying, no, I'm not a quitter. I'm just going to work harder and harder to get promoted and everything will be easier or I'll just write a lot of grants to buy myself some time. So I did the opposite of what my body needed. I just pushed more and it th then everything blew up. So what was your inner critic telling you? Like, I'm, I'm really wondering, like, what was it saying about taking sick leave? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, you know, there was so much shame. You know, the mm -hmm. identity of an academic, we are all extremely intelligent. We are all high achievers. And so you don't want to be the one who is not managing. And so I felt like I would be a total loser. Everyone would see that I'm the one who can't cope. Um, mm. All these feelings. I was really, really ashamed. It took me a really long time to even tell anyone at work, you know. Wow. Um, and so... Yeah, I, f I felt I can't, I felt I can't talk to anyone about it. I felt I have to sh have this outer image of me being this really successful, young, achieving academic woman mm. who can totally do it all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so at what point did you break and you had to sort of come to terms with the fact that things were not going well for you. Yeah, it was something that I would say my body did for me. And, you know, <laughs> in, in the moment. You. Yeah, yeah. Lucky, I mean, in hindsight, yes, it was necessary. I would have never stopped just on rational thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, after a difficult term with an extra, you know, committee leading role and, you know, sort of you know my child was still young and all that about two of them actually um I was driving home from Scotland from a writing retreat um and I knew that the next day I had to start teaching um and I I just had all this resistance in my in my head but I was like no I'm going home and then next day I'm gonna hop on the train again and go up again towards you know the north where where I work and then on the train I had a big fat panic attack and it just threw me you know it was it was so hard because I was sitting on this train and from Scotland down towards Cambridge that's quite a few hours and I felt you know I'm sitting on this train I can't breathe my heart is racing am I having a heart attack all these things you know I couldn't you know it was really really I feel dizzy and I just felt all alone and the world is ending. And I just had to wait it out until that train arrived home. And so I somehow, I don't even know how, but I made it home. I crashed at my house. I cried like hell. And next the next day I went to the GP, to the doctor and signed myself off sick. Okay. Okay. So it was this like, oh, I can't, this is, this, this can't continue anymore. I, I literally mm. cannot do this. Yeah. And my body basically incapacitated me because I could, you know, I made it to the doctor's office. But once I had had this appointment where I cried my heart out and felt also really ashamed, right after that, she said, you know, take two, two weeks of sick leave for now. I had the next panic attack. <laughs> and so I sort of made it home. And then when I wanted to go for groceries, um, I had the next panic attack. So my body was saying, like, you need to really, really listen now. And I, it, there was no way I would go on any train. You know, I was just completely, the body was just like, nope, not, not doing it. That's it. Stop. Wow. Okay. So what was it that your body needed most? I think initially just rest. Mm -hmm. um you know I did nothing I didn't even go to the yoga studio you know I had this plan okay now I'm off sick leave I'm gonna put in all the wellness you know <laughs> I'm gonna go to the yoga right. and I'm gonna do this and gonna do that and so um I mean luckily for me the pandemic hit around that time and you couldn't actually leave the house mm. and so for me that was a godsend I just hung out in my garden and I did nothing 
And it took me a while. Like in my head, I was still buzzing and thinking, oh, what's my next step? What should I do? And I just, I needed to sort of really understand, do nothing, nothing, nada. And so that was the first thing that I just needed to calm down. I was on this fight or flight level that was just, you know, crazy. Um, yeah. And yeah, then I needed then I needed to just start listening to what I actually want to do. And that was sort of the sec second step after that. Mm. Okay. Okay. And how difficult was it to get through the nothing period? Like, were you so sort of fried <laughs> that it was okay to do nothing? Or did you have like inner critic stuff popping up saying, hey, this is not okay that you're not doing anything? Like, what, what was that like? Were you sort of coping with some around doing nothing or was it okay um you know as a good academic what I did is I ordered a whole lot of books about mental illness and yeah. uh, so you know I got the burnout book by Emily and uh, Amelia Nagoski and there's mm -hmm. another book by Alicia Clark hack your anxiety and a few other books um And I just sort of, I was in analytical mode. I tried to sort of analyze mentally, you know, with my thinking brain, what was going on with my body. I really wanted to understand it. I almost went into, I'm going to research the hell out of that thing. And so wow. that was sort of the first thing I did. And I, you know, it helped me. It was, you know, it was good for me, but I, it wasn't the only thing because I, dr I did drown in negative self-talk at that point. Um, I did understand why burnout happens. So intellectually I could understand it, but sort of like when I didn't read those books, I was sitting there and still thinking, well, what will my colleagues think? I've been two weeks off already and mm. it kept popping up. So was there a point that um, you could, rest in the nothingness and be sort of okay with it and not feel bad about it and not worry what your colleagues might be thinking did you ever reach a point where you were where you could just sort of you know lie there on a cloud and enjoy the time off or did it never did that never come to fruition Oh man, Danielle, I want to say yes so badly, <laughs> um, but no, um, I did, yeah. you know, I did calm down and I did sort of a little bit of exercise, a little bit of walking, a little bit of meditating. And so definitely the level of, of stress went down, but I also felt really, I felt really bored, You know, doing nothing, mm. not really something that I learned in my life. And so, but I also didn't want to return to work. Um, I knew that I need more time off. So I was sort of like, okay, so what do I do now? And I even called, I called my mom, who is a very sort of pragmatic uh, German who has also been through her own stuff in life. And I just told her, you know, I don't really know what to do. I'm doing nothing as the doctor said, and I'm still not feeling it I definitely don't want to work what should I do and then she was really very pragmatic and she said find yourself some project yeah mm. something small and that's when I decided okay I'm going to take some creative writing courses easy peasy just to write because writing I've always loved writing and it's always sort of helped me so That was something where I didn't have to sit still and feel bored, but it was also really creative and reflective. And that sort of was my way of wriggling myself into a situation where I felt a little bit of hope and a little bit of joy. Mm, okay. Okay. So you finally get to a place where it feels okay. And then... You have to return to work. Mm. Yes. And what then happens? Yeah. I mm. wish I had not gone back, to be honest. But at the time, I thought it was okay. Um, it was really hard. The whole returning to work process was difficult for me because I had to, in front of HR and my line manager and with occupational health, 
teams, I had to sort of like explain myself and I, I asked for a few things to make it easier for myself, but not everything was possible simply because the university isn't meant to work for the individual, you know, they have their constraints. And so I got mm -hmm. so much anxiety around all these conversations of reintegrating me into work. Um, I did go back for a semester actually, and thought well maybe you know I can manage because it's on it's always just one term and then there's another break right so I thought well okay maybe yeah. I can I can do it but it was you know I went back and I relapsed pretty much straight away it yeah wow so I pulled through that semester and then luckily I had a research leave a sabbatical lined up there was a fellowship waiting for me mm. um but yeah I went on that fellowship as in didn't go back to work and then that fellowship turned into me quitting the job eventually uh, okay wow okay so you you finally quit and what is it that's getting you to a point where you can say to yourself okay I can do this I can quit this is a good move um what are sort of the factors involved um, in you making that decision? One was definitely changing a little bit my identity. So before I was 10 years on academic, all I thought about was academia. I was in the club. I was part of faculty. <clears throat> you know, that was my life. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, Professor Nicole Jans, you know, this amazing person. And so what I did during that time when I was, you know, off work, I started hanging out with writers. Um, there's a lovely community uh, called the London Writer Salon. Um, and they run writing retreats and interviews with writers. So I fully immersed myself into this group of novelists, journalists, you know, script writers, bloggers, all these people. And I started saying to them, when I introduced myself, I would say, I'm a writer. And I sort of dropped, you know, so sort of, I tried to not talk too much about the lectureship and where I'd come from. And sort of this community really, really helped me. And wow. um, I also signed up for a one-year certificate in creative writing at Cambridge to sort of just to keep up the creative side because I didn't, I wasn't an academic anymore, but I didn't want to use, uh, lose the writing part of it. So I just, you know... Um, I started writing fiction and, you know, short stories and all these things. And so there was another, there was a new club of creative people who, are, who write and no one gave a shit if I had professor in my title or not. Uh -huh. And so this, this really helped just hanging out with different people. So um, what kind of advice would you give to people who are in that place they have truly reached burnout and they are seriously thinking about leaving but they're also really worried about what that would mean um what that would mm. mean for their image what that would mean for like like their skills and a, a job <laughs> um what kinds of things might you say to somebody or what would you say <laughs> maybe to yourself back when you had reached burnout the first time? Mm. Uh, well, I would probably say that it's not going to be as bad as you think it'll be mm. because we have all these mm. fears. We sort of envision the big catastrophe that is our life, which means we have failed at this career and now <laughs> what? <laughs> and so having gone through it, you know, and uh, for two years I refused to think about quitting this job. I was like so resistant. I could not imagine not being Professor Nicole Jans anymore. And so mm. I had all this very anxiety. And once I did the first little step, the first little step was really taking rest. If you are at a university that can give you sick leave and you have a partner or someone who can help, help out so that it's financially possible, take as much of the sick leave as you can. I've told some of my clients, whatever it is, take yeah. all of it. Yeah, take it, grab yeah. it. I know that not everyone can, not every university, you know, has that. And the other thing I would say is see if you can make space within the life that you have right now and 
you can, for example, do that not just by prioritizing and saying no to stuff, but also by thinking about academia not so much as something that is your passion and the only thing you want to do in life, but as something that for now in this difficult period, while you haven't quit yet, this is just your job. It's basically mm -hmm. as if you work in a shoe shop, you go, you do the absolute mm -hmm. minimum of what you got to do, you go home mm -hmm. and you rest. And so mm -hmm. suddenly you detach yourself and your identity from that job. I know it's super hard and I've totally struggled with it, but once it's just the thing that gives you income until you got something better, it's not so precious anymore, right? Mm. And then, of okay. course, hanging out with different people. I just hung out with, as an academic, I had only academic friends. My husband is an academic. Yeah. And so I didn't even know any other people. And that has radically changed. Now I know what, you know, I don't even care what job they have. I just want to connect to people. Um, right. And yeah, so journaling, of course, has really helped me. Um, there's a book that I that I read and a course that I did. It's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Mm -hmm. So this is a simple, easy way. You can do it on the side. It takes you through a lot of inner reflection work. I did that two times in a row during that time. And it helped oh, me okay. check in with myself, just figure out what do I really want in life. And, you know, yeah. that's another one. So, I mean... In hindsight, it's so easy to to give this list of great tips that worked for me. Obviously, when I was in it, I was just tapping in the dark and grabbing onto one little thing. And then I grabbed onto the other little thing. It doesn't matter which steps you take. Just I did something. And mm -hmm. that's maybe mm -hmm. even the key. Okay. Okay. And I have to ask, and I don't know if this is, like a good question or not, but I have to ask. So I talk to a lot of people, I guess I shouldn't say a lot, but I have a good handful of people who've been on the podcast who are writing coaches and they coach specifically academics. Mm -hmm. And that's not you. You are, you do coach academics, but you also coach others. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering Is that part of your sort of attempt to um, be involved in, in, in the world that is not academia as well, in mm -hmm. that world that you found after you started to think about leaving? Yeah, for sure. Is it? Abs okay. Yeah, absolutely. It was a deliberate choice. I, I, most of my clients are academics, and it's so easy for me to understand what they need. Um, sure. I've been there and all that, right? And so, but I'm also coaching nonfiction writers. Um, I even coached a novelist at some point, but I now I'm sort of moving towards people who I, who might be academics, but they want to write a book for a wider audience. So for me, that's not an academic anymore in, in the way they talk to me. There's a person who is writing a book for a wide audience for uh, about mindfulness, and it's not an academic book on purpose. And so that is amazing mm -hmm. for me. And there's another person who is a coach. Um, and so I'm now a coach. And so I know what coaches need and how their, their time and schedule works and how they can create their own voice to bring value in, in the form of a book, for example, or other you know blogs and things like that. So I needed to widen it a little bit because my life has also opened up. And mm -hmm. in that way, I'm sort of, I want to be a little bit more varied. And it's, you know, it's fun for me to have, you know, one day I talk about character and plot and the next day I talk about um, the research method and the statistics and the T-test, okay. which is, you know, and so I know all these things. I'm, I'm trying to sort of embrace that I used to be an academic and part of me will always be like that. But there's also new stuff that excites me. And I, I think it would not be good for me actually to push all the academic. I, in, initially, I said I'm going to coach anyone but academics, because I felt like I need to, <laughs> you know, I need to say goodbye to this world. And then I realized yep. over time, no, that's not the answer. It's not the devil, you know. I can embrace. Yes. Oh, I went through right? the same thing. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so funny you say that because I know so many people who like who have uh, their coaches. They're like executive coaches. They left corporate, and when they left, they were like, "I am never 
ever going back to corporate again. I will never coach corporate people. I will never do that. And then, you know, within a couple years, they're coaching corporate people. <laughs> and yeah. I was like that too. I left academia and I was like, never again. We are not doing this. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess at first I thought I was going to coach uh, professors, but then I, I, I stepped away from that. I was like, no, 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 I, I can't touch that world. It's just too toxic for me. Yeah. But then here I am. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a developmental thing. Like, I think you really have to heal. And I don't know, you tell me where I'm wrong as it relates to your story. But it's like, you have to heal from what academia, what you sort of blamed on academia <laughs> for mm -hmm. a while. Um, and then once you heal from that, you can then start embracing it in a different way. I don't know if that resonates. It does. It, you know, mm. it feels a bit like, like a breakup where you need some yeah. distance. You don't want to see that person every day, but once you've had that distance and you put everything into perspective, you can see the things that maybe you also didn't do to the best of what you can, and then you can start becoming friends with them again. That's such a great metaphor. Okay, cool. So um, I guess I want to know what it feels like to be a little bit more open and varied and to identify with academics, but also identify with other types of writers and sort of be willing to go in new directions and try other things. Um, is there a, is there a feeling associated with that? Um, compared to the feeling that you had as an academic when you were like, this is who I am. I must maintain this image. Um, this is, I, I want a successful academic career. I want people to see that I have a ac successful academic career. Um, I mean, I guess my question is obvious, but what's, like, what's the difference in feeling between identifying that way versus the way you do now? Mm. I've, you know, I've, it sounds a bit weird, but I feel a little bit more like Nicole. Ah. Um, instead of just feeling like this persona, which used to be the professor persona, by the way, before that, for 10 years, I was a journalist. So there used to be this journalist per persona as well. And so mm. now I feel, I mean, maybe it's midlife. I don't know. But, you know, I feel like, I, you know, I can be many things. I am a mother and, you know, I am a creative writer and I am a coach and I'm also someone who handles anxiety, manages or struggles. This is all of these things are true. And it just feels a little bit more flowy and a little bit more open and, you know, growing rather than sort of stuck and forced and clenched teeth and all that. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice feeling. It's sort of unfamiliar to me while I'm saying it. I'm feeling like, <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> but it's sort of new, but it's, it's kind of nice, you know? Yes, very nice. Mm. Okay, okay, okay. I love it. Um, so I guess my next question is, um, what feels like a good way to sort of complete this conversation what has sort of been left unsaid that you would like to make sure you say I think wow there are many things you know I think that I've, I have a feeling that a lot of people at the moment after the pandemic and the way academia and higher education is in the directions it's moving in a lot of people are thinking about leaving and I guess what I want to say is that you know it is possible to leave and to find your way and it may not be what you thought it would be. For example, I actually never wanted to be, I never wanted to do academic writing support. It was the least thing I wanted to do because it, when I was still an academic, it felt like, oh, these are the people who are just helping undergraduate students to write an essay and they are not valued. They get shit money. Um, mm. And so obviously I became a coach in a very different <laughs> way, right? On my own terms. Mm. And so, so, but when you think about leaving, maybe just imagine what if you could feel freedom? It's a big word, but you know, what if you could feel just freedom of your schedule? What if you could feel that you are not being micromanaged? And, you know, what if you could feel that doors are open for you mm. and sort of see mm. 
when you have that, just if you can hang on to that thought just a tiny bit and imagine something for your future. Once, once I did that a little bit and I needed coaching for that and I couldn't do it by myself, I was too stuck. But once you can imagine a little bit, what if, what if I could have that? What if I don't have mm. to stay stuck here? Um, mm. You know, that is already the first step to just empowering yourself a little bit and see what's going to happen. Ooh, okay. Okay. And so now I know I said that was like one of the final questions, but I do have a couple more. So the next one, now that you said that is about like, now that you've spent a lot of time healing mm -hmm. and um, you're helping to heal others who are, you know, academic writers who are trying to make it work. And you said you're, you're really doing a lot of sort of unpacking the inner critic stuff with them. I'm wondering, after all of this self-healing and helping to heal others, what would you have done differently? I guess what's the main thing you would have done differently when, um, at burnout had you known what you know now? I... I'm generally happy with how the journey went because mm. um, it brought me here and certain lessons sort of sometimes they need to happen for you to really get it. Um, sure. But I do wish I had asked for help sooner um, uh, because once okay. I told a few selected colleagues how I'm struggling, I know I sort of figured I noticed that they are feeling in a similar way and I carried all this shame and, yeah. you know, then I talked to this professor in my department and he said, you know what, I feel the same way. I'm sort of wriggling my way through because, you know, retirement is coming up and there's no point in me leaving. But I feel the exact same way. And I, I did that way too late. I just tried to impress everyone all around. And so just talking to someone and opening, being vulnerable just a little bit. I think if I had that done that sooner... I could have spared myself some of that, some of that shame and the pain that goes with that. Oh, that's such a great way to end. Okay. So Nicole, if I am a writer who really wants to be more productive and do it in a self-compassionate way and do all the stuff that you offer, tell me how I can get in touch with you for coaching. Oh, the easiest way is go to my webpage. It's called www.nicolejans.com. You, if you just Google me, you'll find me. And just set up a discovery call. It's for free. You get a lot of coaching in that call already. And you might find it, you know, useful for you. Or you might feel like, oh, I'm not ready for this. But the call itself usually gives you a great idea of where you're at. And if coaching is a good thing for you, at this point in time. Awesome. Okay. Anything else um, that you want to say in the end? Well, I do want to say something and I'm, I hope I'm not going to well up here, but I want to thank you, Danielle, <laughs> because oh. you have been the coach who made me for the first time say out loud, I want to quit my job and I know it's the right mm. thing for me. I, I'm not sure how long, how much longer it would have taken me to admit that to myself other than in the session with you. So thank you for that. Wow. Ah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.